Thank you for reading that, Eric. Yes. Good morning to those here, to those joining us online from near and far. We're deep into summer at this point, and you know, between people getting to take vacations and others just joining us for the first time, it's time for a quick update on what's been happening in the life of our church lately. We set out for this to be a summer of prayer for our church family. Back at the beginning of June, we said, you know, <clears throat> here's what we can do on our own strength. Here's what God can do. So what better use of time is there than seeking his face in prayer this summer? So let's, let's, let's cut way back on putting events on the church calendar. Let's breathe. And when we do put something on the church calendar, let's make sure this summer that it has an emphasis on prayer. So we've been prayer heavy in our meetings this summer, in our worship services. We've been prayer walking our towns and neighborhoods. Who's already participated in a prayer walk this summer? Several of you have, yeah. Then for sermons, we said, let's preach some prayers. So we're in the Psalms of Ascent, these songs for the journey that God's people would pray, pray to a melody as they went up to Jerusalem for worship. We heard from Pastor Lee Eklov last week. That was sweet. We've heard from Pastor Sean in the series. We'll hear soon from Dr. Lau. And along the way, many of you have shared with me that this has been the right series at the right time. Praise God. If you miss a week because you're downstairs helping with the kids or uh, out of town, the great thing is it's all on our YouTube channel now. So I pray that these songs for the journey give voice to the songs of your heart the way they have for me this summer. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Three young kids. Each of the three was given a set of blocks to play with. They were instructed, build whatever you want to build. Dream as big as you want. So child one, we'll call him anxious. Okay, Anxious built his tower slowly. You could see him kind of biting his fingers while he tried to make up his mind where to place his next block. He would put one down and look at it, take it back out. When asked what he was feeling while he built his tower, anxious said, I really don't want to mess it up. That's anxious. Child number two, we'll call her arrogant. Arrogant built her tower pretty quickly. She was decisive, fearless. When asked what she was feeling while she built her tower, she said, I built a million towers before. I'm a master at this. Best in my preschool class, actually. That was arrogant. Child number three, we'll call him passive. Passive never did get around to attempting to build anything. He waited out the allotted time without placing even a single block. When asked what he was feeling, he said, what's the point? I could be on my way to building the best tower and my brother will just come and knock it over. Better not to try it all. That was passive. Those three approaches, anxious, arrogant, passive, they're all incredibly normal for little ones. who are trying to figure out their world and what to do with success and failure, what to do with the messages that accompany the experiences of success and failure. I wonder, though, 
Do you see yourself in any of those three kids? Anxious, arrogant, passive. As you endeavor to build things of your own as a teenager or as a grown-up, do you find yourself still feeling like anxious felt or like arrogant felt or like passive felt? And actually, I want to make it a little more concrete. Uh, you were given a block and a marker on your way in. Everybody take that out now. If you didn't get one, raise a hand up, and one of the ushers maybe in the back will grab you one off the back table. You got a block and a marker on the way in. Uh, between now and the end of this sermon, I want to invite you to write on that block something that you're presently endeavoring to build. Okay, so what do I mean by building? It could be something that you're physically building. You're working on building a treehouse for your grandkids. It could be something that you're building at work. You're trying to build a high-performing sales team. It could be something you're building in your family. You're trying to build an atmosphere of encouragement in your home, maybe. Whatever it is, we're all building something. Right? So think about it. When you walk out these doors, what is it that you're going to be at work building this week? Let me give you a few seconds to think about what you want to write on your block. When you think of one, you can just write it right here on your block. Now, as you've had a chance to write, and if you need a little more time, you can write at any point during this sermon. But I want you to hold that block in your hand during this sermon. I want you to turn it around a few times in your hands while you reflect on the effort that you've already put into building whatever it is that you wrote on that block. And as you do, I, I want you to think about our three young friends again, anxious, arrogant, and passive. Which of them is most like you? The author of our psalm today knew a little about building. His name was Solomon. Uh, would you turn with me to Psalm 127 if you haven't already? Psalm 127. One of the great builders in world history, Solomon was. He built palaces. He built up defenses for a city and a nation until there were no enemies who wanted to attack him anymore. He built a family. He built God's temple. In most of those endeavors, he was considered a wild success. And actually, everybody knew why he was successful. Wisdom. Kings and queens came from around the world to experience for themselves Solomon's wisdom. And even if you've never read the Bible, you may be familiar with the story of Solomon. He's the king who succeeded to the throne in Israel. And God asked him, what do you want? I'll give you anything, Solomon. And Solomon said, I want wisdom. Wisdom, skill for living. That's a good definition of what wisdom is. It's, it's knowing what to do in that vast majority of life situations in which there's no black and white moral rule that applies to the situation and gives you the answer about what to do. Uh, and as far as wisdom goes, Solomon was in a class of his own. He wrote 3,000 Proverbs, according to 1 Kings 4. But, just so happens, he wrote only two of our Bibles, 150 Psalms. This is, happens to be one of the two. Not surprisingly, it's classified as a wisdom psalm. It aims to impart wisdom, and when Solomon offers wisdom, it's a good idea to take notes. And so, what is this wisdom psalm about? The topic here, I think, is blessing. The word, does, the word blessing doesn't actually show up in the psalm, but let me make a case for blessing as the topic anyway. Take a look at the blessings that show up 
in these five verses. We've got the Lord building a house for you. That would be a blessing. We've got the Lord watching over a city to protect it. That's a blessing. The Lord giving sleep. The parents of young children said, Lord, send that blessing. The Lord giving children, that in itself is a blessing. All of those are laid out in the five verses of this psalm. Uh, when you look at it that way, blessing really is the theme that runs through the whole thing. And then when we realize that blessing is what holds this whole psalm together, it's easier to see how the two major parts of the psalm relate to one another. So there's a couple verses about blessed work at the beginning, and then there's a few more verses about blessed family. Blessed work, blessed family. We'll take each in turn before we identify connections between the two and close. First, blessed work, verses 1 and 2. Uh, follow along with me as I reread those. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. If the U.S. Bureau of Labor findings are accurate, these two verses may hit especially close to home for us millennials. Pre-pandemic, we were already working longer hours than any recent American generation had worked. Now, COVID has lengthened the average workday as more of our work has gone remote and therefore theoretically can be done at any time, morning or night. And while I'd like to paint our generation as victims of these ruthless work environments, the data actually show that an outsized number of millennials are what researchers call work martyrs. In other words, we love to work ourselves ragged or at least we love to be perceived as the sort of people who work ourselves ragged. It's a badge of honor for many across the generations, but for a disproportionate number of millennials. But these verses remind us that the drive to work ourselves to the bone isn't actually new. There may be advances in technology that increase our ability to defy our limits by filling more of our days and nights with toil, but the overworking impulse itself is nothing new. And Solomon has in mind people who struggle with this enduring human condition, stretching ourselves to our limits to squeeze in as much work as possible. So follow along with me. Verse 1 starts with people who stretch themselves to their limits to build houses. Solomon says, hey, remember, even if your building of this house is successful, it's not ultimately that you achieved a well-built structure, but rather it's ultimately that God blessed you with a well-built structure. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And any homeowner whose well-built house has nevertheless suffered a freak catastrophe knows that none of us ultimately control whether our houses stand. Then the second half of verse 1, he moves on to people who stretch themselves to their limits to make sure their city is as safe as possible. Solomon says, remember, even if you successfully make your city secure, it's not ultimately that you achieve security, but rather that God blessed you with security. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And as we've all uh, watched the news in horror, as we've seen school shootings in affluent, safe suburbs like ours, we've learned just how true it is that none of us ultimately control whether our cities are safe. Then in verse 2, which ironically was the verse I arrived at in my study at 1 a.m. one night this week, Solomon moves on to people who burn the candle at both ends. 
It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Solomon tells us, and there are many of us in this congregation, your exhaustion is pointless because you have a God who's wanting to bless you with the gift of sleep. In all three of the examples given in these two verses, wisdom calls these striving, straining people to turn their focus toward God's blessing. In other words, there's a God who wants to do stuff for us, to bless us, to shower down his blessing from above. Yet, here we are, working ourselves frantic, trying to do it ourselves. That's why Tim Keller can say it as bluntly as this. If you are overworked and overstressed, you're forgetting who God is. And he's talking about perpetually over time. If this is a pattern in your life, if you are overworked and overstressed, you are forgetting who God is. Now, of course some people are guilty of underworking, right? There are plenty of other scriptures that condemn laziness, but these two verses remind us that it's not just the lazy person who misses out on God's blessing. The hardworking person can also miss out on God's blessing if we're constantly eating the bread of anxious toil. Toil is what our work becomes in the absence of the blessing of God. It's the language of the curse in Genesis 3, that because of human sin, much of humankind from, would, from that point onward live in this constant frenzy just to eke out an existence. But when God restores his blessing, as Psalm 127 indicates that he has, at least for his people and at least in part, our work can be transformed from toil into something else. I'll just share a little of my journey on this. For a person like myself who hates acknowledging that I have limits. Parenthood has been a really tough adjustment. Maybe some of you can relate. I used to work 70 hour weeks, no problem, sleep when I get around to it, loved it. So incredibly productive, felt so good. Then I became a dad and first of all, I didn't know it was possible to feel this tired. But beyond that, and some of you are in the same boat, the commitment that I'm not willing to budge on is that I am going to put in the time with my kids that they need with their dad, period. But that means I just watched my work week, potential hours I could be working shrink from this to like this. Right? Do you know how much I used to be able to accomplish during this part that I lost? I, I confess that I've honestly caught myself in the last four years, holding resentment toward God during seasons. I don't have enough work time to achieve all the great things that I think I could achieve. But here's what I realized. I can either keep fighting my limits, fighting against them, or I can start the hard work of embracing them. Fighting my limits is only ever going to make me miserable. That's all it's ever done. Right? Finding a way to embrace my limits Seems impossible, but it's the only path to joy, only possible path to joy. So I have a long way to go, but by God's grace, I want to tell you this morning, I'm actually finding moments of contentment this last year or two in, in the acceptance of limits. I'm not waiting to rest anymore until the work is done. I'm resting because the work will never be done. And I owe it to all of you to say this. Thank you for being a congregation that makes space for a pastor with a young family to observe those limits early in his career. 
Not every pastor has a group of elders or a staff team or a congregation that gives the sort of grace that you've given me, so thank you for that. Blessed work. It's at this point between verses 2 and 3, this space right here, that this psalm seems to take what uh, is kind of a hard left turn. It's maybe the most striking feature of this psalm. Like, where does verse 3 come from? So, so let's dig into it. Verses 3 through 5, blessed family. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. I haven't heard this psalm read at weddings as much as I used to. Uh, in fact, these verses may even be picking up a certain cringe factor. I wonder if anyone squirmed just a little bit as we were reading these verses in an era of historically low birth rates. You've probably heard that American birth rates were already at unprecedented lows in 2019, and then COVID dropped them another 4% in 2020. 21 is projected to be even lower. Part of what contributes to those numbers is a fertility crisis, meaning that even those who want to have kids are struggling to do so like never before. You might have seen the studies and books showing that over the last 40 years, ability to reproduce has fallen off a cliff, both for males and females. But surely attitudes toward having kids have changed as well. Uh, you probably heard people, even Christians, telling, advising young engaged couples, for example, hey, travel the world first, right? Take your time before jumping into parenthood. I mean, have a kid or two down the road, but don't have too many. It'll cramp your standard of living. So in 2021, has the second half of Psalm 127 become hopelessly outdated? I want to make the case that with appropriate clarifications about what this means and doesn't mean, these words are just as wise as they ever were and maybe more needed than they ever have been. So, so let's unpack it here. Keeping with the blessing theme, the first two verses, we have the fundamental approach in verses 3 through 5 that kids are a gift, not a burden. Look at the language there. We've got heritage, reward, uh, blessed. Kids are a gift, right? Quick question, though. Parents, do our kids feel from us that they are gifts to us? Maybe ask them today when you get home. Or do our actions communicate that they are burdens, annoyances that keep us from what we really want to be doing, i.e., scrolling our phones? You say, hold on now, not everyone's even convinced that kids are gifts and not burdens. Let's back up. Well, why does Solomon think of kids as gifts? Well, he says they're like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Okay, so whatever that means, it clearly paints a picture of kids being a benefit to the parent, right? Such that the parent is better off for having had the kids. So Solomon can say, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with these arrows, verse 5. But we still haven't really been told why he thinks that person is blessed. Until the second half of verse five gives a concrete scenario illustrating how kids might benefit parents. So here, so here it is, uh, look at verse five. The, what's going on there is you're an elderly person in ancient Israel, right? You're facing your enemies at the town gate. Now, these are evil people bent on committing injustice against you, preying on you in the court system because you're elderly. Solomon lays out that scenario and envisions 
because you had kids way back when you were young, those kids are now old enough to be teammates for you, to stand alongside you in court against your enemies to ensure that you don't get exploited. Now, the town gate as courtroom aspect of verse 5 might not be easily relatable for us, but the broader principle of thinking now of your kids as future adults who will one day be your teammates and partners, that's certainly applicable today. Right? Think about it. As we live our lives on mission to make disciples, many of the little ones running around downstairs right now as we speak are going to grow up to be co-laborers, shoulder to shoulder with us on that mission. A couple decades ago, right? Some of you were rocking baby Maggie to sleep in the nursery downstairs, right? Today she's leading you in worship. And when you bring your unbelieving neighbor to church next week, they may well hear the gospel for the first time when Maggie shares it in song. So as we talk often, as we do about meeting people at the well, it's the language we use, let's not envision that we can only meet potential disciples of Jesus, potential co-laborers on our mission in our neighborhoods or our workplaces or coffee shops. Sure we will, but let's not forget that the birthing table is one place that you can meet small people at the well who will one day grow up and get discipled in the word and then be sent out as our partners to transform the world. Let's not forget that the front door of your own home is a place to meet little people at the well when you ask the state or agency to bring a boy or girl to you for adoption or to foster or to house temporarily as a safe family like many families in our church have. And let's not forget either, single or childless folks in particular, that Jesus never had a kid, but nevertheless built a family made up of many sons and daughters, as the scriptures say. We remind each other often here at North Sub that he has recalibrated our understanding of family in such a way that spiritual sons and daughters have become part of the truest fulfillment of a scripture like Psalm 127. That means whether you ever have kids or not, when you take a younger person under your wing and train them up in the faith as your spiritual son or daughter, you are raising up a future partner and co-laborer with you, as verse 5 envisions. Okay, so, blessed work, blessed family. We've done a quick survey of both. On a superficial read-through, we get a little whiplash going from verse 2 to verse 3. I think, how exactly do these fit together? Uh, Maybe now that we've seen both, we're a little more ready to answer that question. <clears throat> On a very basic level, work and family were the two basic parts of life for the average person in Israel. Maybe work and family are still the two main parts of many of our lives here. But I actually think the connection between the two parts of the psalm runs a little deeper than that. There's some wordplay going on here. So that word that's translated house in Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew word translated house in verse 1, it actually refers to both the building that you live in and the family or household that lives inside that house. So when we reread verse 1 with that understanding in mind, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain, maybe verse 1 and verse 3 aren't that different after all. In other words, the house that's being built in verse 1 may not be just a physical house. And I think that brings the point of the whole psalm into clearer focus. Taking the two parts together, we might summarize the message of this psalm something like this. Without the Lord's blessing, 
none of our endeavors will amount to anything. Without the Lord's blessing, none of our endeavors will amount to anything. That goes for building actual houses. That goes for building anything tangible or intangible at our jobs. It goes for building a home environment to nurture our little ones. Without the Lord's blessing, none of our endeavors will amount to anything. Cracks show up in the most meticulously poured foundations, don't they? Markets dramatically shift right when you don't want them to, despite all your research. The most hovered over kids sometimes nevertheless turn away from the Lord. You and I at peak effort, peak excellence, peak attentiveness are still decidedly not in control when it comes to being able to guarantee the results we want in any area of our lives. Put it this way, whatever you wrote on this block, it won't succeed without the Lord's blessing. And I think that truth is a corrective to whichever of the three builder kids live inside of you. It corrects you if you're anxious because you don't have to worry about blowing it. Is that good news for anybody? You can be free. The results aren't up to you. Even if you make mistakes while building your tower, and you will, the Lord, if the Lord decides your tower will stand, he'll make it stand. It also corrects you if you're arrogant because it's a reminder that your best efforts will one day fail. You'll follow every best practice just like you've done so many times before, and yet the tower will collapse. Even if you're the most talented and hardworking builder, if the Lord determines your tower won't stand, the storm will come to knock it down. But it also corrects you if you're passive. Because the answer provided in the psalm clearly isn't inaction. Assumed everywhere in this psalm is that the builders, they keep building. The watchmen, they keep watching. The parents, they keep parenting. We don't gain anything, in other words, by refusing to build. The Lord gives us hands so that we can use them. So if it's none of those three approaches, then what is it? Our big idea today is this. Since success isn't ultimately up to us, let's just rest in the giver of blessing. Since success isn't ultimately up to us, let's rest in the giver of blessing. Now, I'm not saying rest like inactivity. I'm saying rest like I breathe a deep sigh of relief and contentedness while I am building. Like I do use my blocks to build as best I can but I rest once I've set them in place. I don't know what the outcome will be, but I do know that the Lord is in control and I do know that he loves me. And so despite my imperfections and failures, I know that he may choose to shower the work of my hands with his blessing. And since success isn't ultimately up to us, let's rest in the giver of blessing. Well, Psalm 127 has given us rich wisdom from the second wisest man ever to live. And you can picture, can't you, the, the pilgrims singing this song to each other on their way up to worship at Jerusalem. Hey, guys, let's go to Zion so we can seek God's blessing on our work lives, on our family lives. But some of you know the latter part of Solomon's story. Tragically, Solomon didn't live by the wisdom that he had. For all he knew about building, his building programs became foolish. For all he knew about family, 
He rejected God's commands in the end for family life, and his family became such a train wreck that it tore apart the entire kingdom almost instantly after his death. Rereading Psalm 127 in light of how Solomon's life ended, that provides us with a sober warning not to let the wisdom of Scripture just go through our heads without penetrating to our hearts and working itself out in our hands and feet. See, as it turns out, Solomon, he's not the hero of this song. Solomon's authoring of this song was actually always meant to point us to someone beyond himself. If you've been joining in our Read the Bible in a Year plan, you might have caught it because we read the relevant passage just this week, 1 Chronicles 17. David wanted to build a house for God, the temple. But what did God say? No, David, your son is going to be the one to build that house. Meanwhile, I'll build you a house, David, by which he meant I'll build you a family dynasty. And God made crazy promises there in 1 Chronicles 17, 2 Samuel 6 about that family dynasty, some of which came true in Solomon, David's son, but most of which were pointing ahead to Solomon's great, 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 great grandson, Jesus, who would come to die and rise again in our place to build the house that God himself would watch over for all of eternity, namely the church. We can try all we want to build the church. We can try all we want to build this particular instance of the church, North Suburban Church in Deerfield. And trust me, we plan to keep doing the work of building. With Pastor Sean and now Maggie coming on, there's two more members we've added to our staff team this year who are giving it their all and continuing the legacy of those who have gone before them. I'm excited about what God might do through our labors. We won't be passive, but whether you're an elder, deacon, life group leader, church member who just cares about this church and wants to have a hand in building it up, may we not be arrogant about our building or anxious about our building this church. In the end, it's the Lord's decisive blessing that we need. Amen. So may we not be the church of frenzied labor. I'm going to say that again. May we not be the church of frenzied labor. Rather, May we be the church that works hard and then rests contentedly because we trust that the Lord is the one who will build his house. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have built this house and that you plan to continue building it. You give us the great privilege of using our own hands, our feeble efforts, our flawed uh, energies, to participate in the work of building. Uh, But yet, Lord, at the end of the day, we know that even our best of our best of our best efforts won't amount to anything unless you choose to shower down your blessing on us. And so, Lord, we ask that. We ask that you'd shower down your blessing on this season of life in North Suburban Church, that you'd build up families, that you'd build up uh, friendship communities, that you'd build up individuals, that you'd build up life groups, um, and that you'd build up our local congregation so that we look more and more like you and, 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 and better carry out our mission to take people from the well to the word to the world, making disciples in your name. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond with a short prayer in which we 
let go of the ownership of the things that we have accomplished and uh, give our glory to Jesus, the author of all of it. So if you feel led, please join me in reading this prayer aloud. Lord, admitting that my accomplishments are your gift is a bittersweet thing to do. It stings at first because it humbles, but then it is so very sweet and brings such peace. It is not up to me, and it never was. Let me work hard with this liberating insight, removing the pressure I sinfully put on myself. Amen. Take a moment to reflect on that prayer. these words of assurance from Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not in our own works, right? You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. We are powerless on our own, but in Christ we have the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish what it is that God has for us to do. So let's boast in God through Jesus together. Um, and respond in singing. Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive, unless the Lord does raise the house in vain, the build to
blessing. And without that blessing from the Lord, none of our efforts will amount to anything. Not our efforts at work, not our efforts in the home. But there's good news today, that if we belong to Christ, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Christ. Do you believe that? That when he died, we died with him. When he was raised to new life, we were raised to new life with him. And when he ascended to be seated in the heavenly places, we too went there with him in the heavenlies where we now are blessed. And so as we conclude this service, Maggie and Janelle and I just want to sing this blessing straight from scripture over you all. And as you pick up the melody, would you join in with us and sing it over each other? of God, I find their yes in Him. 
That is why through him we utter our amen to God for, for his glory. 2 Corinthians 1.20 blessing this morning, not because of our hard work to attain it, but because of the work of Christ in our place. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I just have a couple announcements before we go. Uh, you wrote on that block today, uh, Keith Nilsson has made a case for us. Uh, it's right there on the back, in the back table. And so if you're willing, we'd love for you to drop your block into that case that Ken's holding up back there right now. And in a few weeks, when we get to Psalm 128, that's closely related to this psalm, we're going to actually bring that case back out and put it on display as a reminder. So make sure you just drop by that case on, in the back on your way out. I uh, want to make sure you caught in the highlights on Thursday that we have some staff members taking well-earned vacations. So check the highlights and see uh, some condensed office hours in the next couple of weeks, you may uh, call in one of these on one of the afternoons and not get anybody. Sorry about that. Uh, and finally, save the date for August 29th for Jane Eckloff's retirement celebration after church. We have been in denial long enough. It's really happening. Uh, we want to send her off the way she deserves. So make sure you save that date. 
Hey, on a morning in which we've been struck by the importance of the Lord's blessing, that decisive blessing on our lives, what better way to leave than one of the oldest blessings in Scripture that we just sang. So uh, receive this from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in peace on this beautiful day.